Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Thank you to our worship team and great job this morning. Would you take your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings is about 20% of the way through your Bible. Just look in the index in the, or table of contents in the beginning. You can find it there, 1 Kings 17. I'm starting a new sermon series today. It's only going to go two or three weeks entitled Little is Much. There are, there are places in the Bible where God took what we would call almost an insignificant something and did something great with it. And so over the next few weeks, just two or three weeks, we're going to look at some of those stories and see how we can apply that to our lives. So today I want to start with one that if you're familiar with your Bible at all is one of the more famous ones in the scripture, 1 Kings 17. And I want to preach this subject, there's more where that came from. Now, this is not a sermon series to say, oh, we should only give a little bit to God. This is a sermon series that says everything we give to God matters, that God can do something with it. Have you ever heard uh, the phrase, raise your hand if you've heard it, he who dies with the most toys wins. You ever heard that phrase? You lose. I was looking at an article this past week and it talked about the 80 wealthiest people in the world. Did you know the 80 wealthiest people in the world own as much, get this, as the bottom three and a half billion, billion people? That means if you started with the poorest person in the world and you worked your way up to three and a half billion, those 80 people own as much as half of the world owns. One of those guys is named Larry Ellison. Larry Ellison is the former, he's in his 70s now, but he was the former CEO of Oracle uh, Software Systems. Larry Ellison just retired. He's worth over $50 billion. And Larry has a couple of hobbies. He likes to collect houses. He has more than 15 houses all around the world. He has all kinds of toys. You, You can look him up later on. But here's the thing about Larry. One of the things he likes is yachts. He owns two yachts. The biggest yacht he owns is a 288-foot yacht that has a basketball court on the back of it. There it is. This yacht cost $130 million. It has over uh, 10-plus full-time staff on it. I read one article that said it cost him about $60 million a year just to maintain the yacht. Now, Larry is an avid basketball fan. He's been trying to buy an NBA team for years. And so Larry had, on the back of his yacht, you can kind of see it there in the very back, uh, he had a basketball court installed. And so when his yacht is traveling around the world, Larry will shoot basketball. Well, if anybody ever lived on a house on a hill, you know, you've played basketball and your ball goes rolling down to the neighbor's yard and you have to go embarrassingly get it all the time. And, and so Larry has the same problem. A lot of times when he shoots basketball, it ricochets off the boat and lands in the ocean. No problem. If you're a billionaire, you just think you'd have 100 basketballs on the, uh, on the 
Yeah, but Larry's environmentally conscious, so he doesn't want to just throw basketballs in the ocean. So you know what he does? He has a powerboat that when he's playing basketball, Larry has an employee that follows behind the boat, the yacht in the powerboat, and that employee's single job, you know what it is? Retrieve the basketballs that go overboard. That's a lot of money. Imagine owning a yacht, a $130 million yacht that has a basketball court on it that you pay somebody in a powerboat to retrieve basketballs that went over the side of your $130 million yacht. Larry also owns one of the few people, maybe the only person that owns an island in Hawaii. He's worth over $50 billion and last year his salary was over $40 million. Here's the thing about that, those 80 people. No matter how much money those super wealthy spends, and they spend it by the millions, there always seems to be more money to spend. They, they can't spend it faster than it comes in. Where, whatever they spend, there's always more where that came now, that's just not a principle, by the way, for the super wealthy. Did you know that that is a Bible principle from God for the believer? That no matter how much we have, God has more to give us. Now, I know tonight, this morning, you're, you're not part of the super wealthy. Now, if you are, I would like to have lunch with you after church today. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, if you are, let me know. But I'm assuming nobody in this room, no one in this room is part of the super wealthy. But So we, we think, well, that's how they live. That's not how we live. But I want you to know that God has designed the Christian life, that that's how he wants us to think. Did you know that heaven never has a recession? Did you know that God never has a financial crisis? And we have to get in our minds that there are two mindsets we have as Christians. One is a scarcity mentality and one is an abundance mentality. And they are on opposite ends in the spectrum. And I want to be honest with you today. I'm going to talk about finances today and money and all that. But look this way. I struggle with this. I, I, I by nature have a scarcity mentality. I, by nature, have a mentality that, that if I'm not careful, it's going to run out. And that's not the mentality. So let me explain scarcity and abundance in terms you can understand. You ever get in the shower and you get in the shower and, and you look at your, your, um, your bottle of shampoo maybe. And at the bottom of your shampoo, there's just a little bit at the bottom of it. You know what you do because you may not have any more in the house. You'll take that shampoo and you think, I can get... I can get three more days out of this if I go through it just care. If I, if I just use my hair short, I'm a guy, I don't need much. I can just use a dot and I'll save the rest for tomorrow and I can shampoo. You get in the shower and you got a brand new bottle of suave shampoo. You know what I'm saying? One of those big giant Walmart economy bottles, half gallon size. You get in there and that's brand new sitting in your shower. You're like, man, I got shampoo to spare this morning. I use it liberally because I know there's more. We have a cabinet in our house that we tend to buy that stuff up in, in bulk. We go to Walmart. We don't buy one tube of toothpaste. We buy 10 and just shove them in that cabinet and keep them when we go there. I can go get the toothpaste, and I, I can go, and if I can get in the last tube of toothpaste, I'm like, hey, 
I mean, I'm going to brush my teeth five times a day. I just need a little dot on there is all I need. That'll work. It'll frothy up my teeth. Nathan, frothy up my teeth good, and um, that'll work. If I go into there and I get a tube of toothpaste and um, uh, there's 10 more tubes, I get my toothbrush and I'm like, yeah, my teeth going to be clean today. I just got it all over there. I ate toothpaste for breakfast this morning because there's an abundance of it. Now, if that didn't, if that didn't make you understand scarcity versus abundance mentality and it affects the way, let me use something you can understand. Let's talk about Oreos for just a moment. About the only snack we keep in our house that's sweet that, that we buy are Oreos. And we usually buy Oreos in two to three family packs at a time. Not double stuff. Those are gross. We buy the regular Oreos. And, and don't judge me. They last a long time at our house. It just saves us from having to go back to the store every two days. And so we just, we just buy them and we, we just put them in there and, and we, we just eat a few Oreos from time to time. The trouble with that is, Josh, who just led worship, Michaelis, he likes Oreos too. And Josh doesn't eat two Oreos at a time. Josh eats them a sleeve at a time. Josh eats an entire sleeve. And you think I'm kidding. Josh will sit at my house, eat a sleeve of Oreos, drink a glass of milk, and say, I'm going to go run five miles and run that off. I eat two Oreos, gain 12 pounds, and pass out in my recliner. That's how it works for me. But Josh eat a sleeve. He'll go run five miles and run it all off and then want more Oreos. So when Josh comes over to my house and we got three brand new packs of Oreos in my house, my wife is like, hey, Josh, there's Oreos in there if you want some because we know he wants some and he's going to go get them. And Josh is going to eat a bunch of those Oreos. If Josh comes over to my house and we are personally down to our last sleeve of Oreos, We hide those things through the house. <laughs> I'm telling you, the FBI with a search warrant could not find those Oreos in my house. Josh said, you got any Oreos? And may not I know of. If they're not in there, Josh, I don't know where they would be. I have them buried out back in a jar under the house, but I, I don't know where they would be. That's an abundance versus a scarcity mentality. See, when I have an abundance mentality and I believe there are Oreos to spare, I just give and give and give. If I have a scarcity mentality and I believe that the last sleeve of Oreos is the last sleeve there will ever be, you're not getting one of my Oreos or mine. And can I tell you, those are the two attitudes that develop in the Christian life about giving. There are those that have a God-blessed, abundant mentality, and you always believe there is more where that came from, that you can't outgive God, that if you give to God and his work, God will give you more and God will replenish that. And then there are those that believe if you have a, that they have a scarcity mentality and they think God's blessings are going to dry up and heaven is in a recession and that if you give what you have, you won't have any more. And I want to tell you, you have to fight a scarcity mentality. I have to fight a scarcity mentality because the mentality God blesses is an abundant mentality. And so immediately some people push back on that and they say, well, preach, that's easy for you to say. You don't know how bad it is for me. And you're right, I may not. But I almost promise you it's not as bad as the lady in the story that we're going to look at today. So would you stand with me as we honor God's word by reading it? You can look on your Bible, your digital device. I'm going to read it right off the screen. You can follow up here along with me. We're going to read the first 16 verses, so hang with me. 
The Bible says in verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, verse 3, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, Well... As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour and a bin, a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away, did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Thank you. You may be seated. Hey, so quickly, let me dive into the story, and I'm going to just walk you through it uh, because it's fairly self-explanatory. I'll walk through you quickly and make some observations. Elijah is a prophet that just kind of burst on the scene. He is the greatest and godliest, uh, one of the greatest and godliest men in the whole Old Testament. His name is a combination of two names for God, Elohim and Yahweh, and it means Yahweh is God. And so here Elijah is this great Old Testament prophet, and it's here in chapter 17 that he just leaps into the arena. And he leaves into the arena on a political stage. He is talking with the royal couple. He's never met Ahab. He's never met Jezebel, the king and the queen of uh, Israel and Samaria. And so he just drops in onto the scene and he announces a drought. He said, there'll be no rain. There'll be no dew in Israel until I say so. They don't know who he is. He doesn't give them a resume. He doesn't give them a reason. He gives them no conditions for mercy. He just delivers the message in verse number one. And by verse number three, he is gone. Now, dew and rain were the two main sources of moisture in Israel. It rained usually from October through March. Dew would be so thick on the mountaintops that it would almost be a drizzle. If you cut that dew off, if you cut that rain off, uh, the land, the arid land in the Middle East would immediately dry up and crops would be gone. Now, God is causing the moisture to be gone because at this time, Ahab and Jezebel have introduced Baal worship to Israel. Now, Baal was the heathen god of fertility for the land. They believed that wealth and abundance and resources came from Baal. And so they they would worship Baal. Baal worship was horrific. Baal, Baal's temple had temple prostitutes in it, male and female. 
when they made a sacrifice to Baal, they would often, the person sacrificing would sacrifice their firstborn child. They would murder their child in order to get prosperity from the God, false God Baal. And so God comes on the scene and God is directly challenging Baal. He's directly challenging Baal worship and he's saying the real God is going to cut off blessings from the land. And so God says, beginning in verse number three, after he made the announcement, he said, now Elijah, they're going to be trying to kill you, so I want you to go hide by a stream or the brook Kareth, because you're going to be hunted by the king. And God said in the next verse four, he said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to get water from the stream, Cherith, and then, then I'm going to have ravens feed you. Raven was the most interesting bird that God used to feed. Ravens are a very selfish bird. As a matter of fact, ravens in the land of Israel would often neglect their own young. They would not feed their own young. They are very selfish bird, and God is using them to feed Elijah. We're going to find out that he feeds them in the morning, he feeds them in the evening, and the Bible says they bring meat to him. The word meat could mean berries, fruit, nuts, meat, all sorts of things. But it ends in verse number 7. That Elijah has been by this brook for a long time. He's been getting water from the brook. The ravens have been feeding him twice a day. It's going pretty good. And in verse number seven, the brook dries up. And so all of a sudden, the man of God has no place to eat, nothing to eat, nothing to drink. So God says to him, I want you to go down to Zarephath. It's about 80 to 90 miles away. It is actually the homeland of Jezebel, the queen who introduced Baal worship into Israel. And so I want you to go down there. And God said, I'm going to use a widow lady in the midst of this famine to feed you. Now, get this. I'm not trying to be crude. It's just a fact uh, that in a famine of this proportion, especially in those days, the widows were the first to die. They were the first to run out. They had no family to sustain them. So it's interesting that God says, I want you to go find a widow lady and she's going to sustain you. So Elijah goes into the city, he finds a woman who's gathering some sticks. She's going to build a fire and he looks at her and says, hey, I want a glass of water. Now, even a glass of water was in short supply, but she's obedient and she goes off to get him a glass of water. And while she's going, he said, hey, I also want some bread. And now that's where she paused. She said, I don't, I don't have any bread. I've got a barrel that's got a little bit of flour in it, and I've got, a, I've got a jar that's got a little bit of oil in it, and here's what I've got. I've got enough to make, uh, she, it's called cakes, and it, basically it's two biscuits is what the translation is. She said, I'm going to make a biscuit for my son, I'm going to make a biscuit for me, and we're going to die. We're going to starve to death. It's a pretty bleak reality, but it's, an actual, it's, it's, it's about accurate. It's about what's going to happen. So Elijah says, uh, here, here's the deal. I don't, I don't want you to be afraid, but I want you to go. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a biscuit for me. Now, instead of making a small one for your son and a small one for you, just want you to put it all together and make me one big biscuit and bring it to me. Seemed like a selfish request. He said, but here's the deal. If you'll do that, God's going to supernaturally bless that barrel of flour and that jar of oil, and it's never going to run dry. And so she did it. She went back in an act of faith, because she didn't know if it was going to happen or not. In an act of faith, she made a, a biscuit for Elijah, took it to him, 
and he ate. And then she went back and looked in the barrel and the jar again. And lo and behold, there was more flour and more oil. And she fed herself. And the Bible says something interesting that um, she didn't feed herself. The Bible says in verse 15 that she and he and her whole household ate during the lifetime of that drought. She had enough flour for two biscuits, but during that drought, she fed herself, her son, Elijah, and an entire household because the Bible tells us in verse 16 that it never ran dry. Now, that's the story. Now, I'll be honest with you. When you read that story in terms of giving to the Lord, it requires very little explanation. As a matter of fact, when you read the story, it's almost one of those stories that you read it and you go, I got it. And you almost don't need a sermon. But since you pay me to preach a sermon, let me go ahead and wrap one around it if you don't mind. And let me make three observations that we need to know when it comes to our giving to the Lord. Number one, here's what I want you to know. And this is talking about Elijah. Obedience is not a shelter from obstacles. Obedience is not a shelter from obstacles. What do you mean by that, preacher? Here's what I mean. Elijah is a central character in the entire Old Testament. Look, Elijah is as famous as a prophet gets. He does exactly what God wants him to do. He delivers a strong prophetic word to the king and queen. They're going to try to kill him. He obeys God. And then God supernaturally takes care of him. God gives him a hiding place next to one of the only streams left. And ravens bring him two meals a day. All in all, it's a pretty good gig by Elijah. God, I preached this sermon the other day. God takes care of those who takes care of his business. God will take care of your business if you'll take care of his business. That is absolutely a Bible principle, except, except. We have this obedient, godly, famous, in the perfect will of God prophet. And look what happened in verse number seven. In verse number seven, the Bible says, his brook dried up. Now, I've got to be honest to you, that hardly seems fair. Here's a guy doing everything right. He knows without a doubt he is right with God and exactly where he should be. And now suddenly the heavenly faucet has been turned off. Now listen, there's more at play here than meets the eye. God knows that Elijah will never leave the river and the ravens if things keep going well. God knows that there's a bigger picture and there's a widow lady that needs provided for. There's another story. There's more to be done. Listen, and Elijah is 100% right with God and in his will. But just because Elijah is 100% right with God and in his will doesn't mean he isn't going to have difficulties in his path. Now look this way this morning because this is hard for us to hear and understand. Hear, hear me, hear me what I'm saying. Here's what we know. Following God leads to earthly success and heavenly success. We know that living for Christ is the most blessed life. We know that if you follow the principles in the word of God, your life will be easier and more productive. We know that the Bible says and is true. 
The way of the transgressor, the way of the evil is hard. That is a Bible verse. We know those things to be totally true and we've experienced those. But what's also true is that sometimes even when you're obedient, there's going to be difficulties in your path. That even when you're doing everything right, difficulties may come. And sometimes God uses those obstacles and difficulties to take you to the next place he wants you. And obedience is not a shelter from difficulties that even when I'm right with God. And listen, this applies to our giving as well. Because sometimes we're thinking, well, if I'm giving, if I'm doing everything right, then God, why am I having a hard time? And listen, God uses those difficulties to change the narrative of our life. What Elijah didn't know. I'm sure Elijah woke up one day and said, whoa, time out, God. There's no water in the stream. The ravens didn't bring me breakfast. But the narrative is switched. And there was something else that God needed to accomplish. And obedience is not a shelter from obstacles and difficulties in your life. The other day, I was uh, two or three weeks ago, I had one of those crazy travel weeks I have. This, this was probably the worst one I've ever had. I had to leave uh, after church on a Sunday and drive to Kentucky. And, and during that week, I, uh, Monday through Thursday, I spoke 12 times in six different cities. I spoke to uh, dozens of pastors at every location I went to. I spoke, we took a break, I spoke again, six different cities. I recorded 11 videos for the Kentucky Convention, and then I drove, in total, 1,542 miles that week, which to you may not seem like a lot, but you do it in, in four days. Now, the trouble is, I came home Thursday night, I was coming home Thursday night late, and Friday night, Friday morning, I had to be up at 5 o'clock to catch a plane with Sherry. So I spoke for the last time in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, and I finished up about 8.30, and I told the guys, I said, hey, guys, I'm going to hit the road. I'm in the mountains of Kentucky. I'm going to hit the road as fast as I can. I'm four to four and a half hours away from home. I just got to get gone. And they said, man, we understand. And so I hit the road in, in Kentucky, and uh, I got on a four-lane highway. I literally, it was five minutes from the church. I jumped on the four-lane highway that was beautiful drive through the mountains, and I got on the highway, and I never do this. I've never, as far as I know, ever, ever done this. And, and, and just in case you think this is a preach story, I, I told my wife about it that night when, when I was on the phone. I've never done this. I got on my road on the way and I said a prayer. I mean, I prayed, but I've never prayed this prayer. I said, dear Lord, let me get home safe. Let me get home quickly. Man, it's early. I got to get up at five o'clock in the morning. I'm not going to get home to midnight. I don't need anything to delay me. Let me just get home quickly. And Lord, whatever happens, don't let me get pulled over by the police on the way home. I kid you not. I no more had said amen. 30 seconds later. When I prayed that prayer, there was not a car in sight. 30 seconds later, I passed a police car who immediately did a U-turn on a four-lane highway. And if you don't know, that's never a good sign. He turned the blue lights on. 
he, I knew he was pulling me over because none of the car on the highway. I pulled over. He came up to the window. My go-to move if I get pulled over is um, I always take my big Bible and I put it up on the <laughs> dash. I just throw it up there like, it's, like I've been riding with it up there, you know. And I had been teaching from my iPad all week and did not have my big fat Bible. I was in Sherry's car, as a matter of fact. He comes up to the window and he said, where are you going in such a hurry? And I said, well, officer, I'm a man of God. And I have been, uh, I, I've been preaching and I've been teaching at churches all week and I'm in a hurry to get home. He said, you, you sure are in a hurry to get home. And uh, he, he kept me there and he got my license and my, and my uh, uh, insurance card. And he said, let me, I'll be back in a minute. He said, you have any idea how fast, because I don't speed. I mean, I don't know why people think I speed. I said, he said, have any idea how fast you're going? I said, no, I tried this. You know, it's my wife's car. I'm never quite sure, you know, the speed's got me all messed up. And he said, well, I said, but I did see I was speeding when I, when I, you know, when you pulled me over, I looked down. He said, well, how fast were you going uh, when you looked down? I said, uh, well, uh, 78 when I looked down. And he said, yeah, and uh, you're going faster than that when I clocked you, and it's a 55. And I said, oh, is it? I didn't know. I didn't see a sign. He said, I'll be back. I called my wife, and I said, Sonny, you're not going to believe this. I prayed to prayer. Lord, don't let me get pulled over. 30 seconds later, the moral of this story is your preacher cannot get a prayer answered. Look, he was gracious to me. I got a ticket, but it wasn't for what it should have been. I, it, he was so gracious to me. I didn't worry about the ticket. I worried about the fact he kept me there for 45 minutes. It's like he's in the car. Like He's like, yeah, I got nothing to do. I got this preacher up here. I'm just going to hold him here for a while, make him dread, you know, slow him down. And so he kept me there. And I, I was talking to Sherry. And I said, Sherry, I'm on the road now. I'm having to drive the speed limit. So, you know, it's going to be a little bit slower on the way home. And so I'm getting home. And I'm figuring I got it all worked in my mind. And it's going to be maybe, and I finally told her, I said, hey, I think I'm making better time than I thought. I'm going to get home by midnight, 1230 or something like that. I'm going to make one pit stop. And I, I got off north of, Na of Knoxville and I got off a gas station and uh, I, I got, uh, I said, I'm going to make one pit stop. Went in and got me some caffeine, got me a snack, came back out to the car. And I never do this. I never do it. I checked Google Maps just to make sure it was all green between Knoxville and, uh, and Chattanooga. And I looked at Google Maps and it was all green. So I got right back on the interstate. I drove 200 yards to the middle of a bridge and the interstate shut down. Sometime between me checking Google Maps and me getting back on the interstate in a position where I couldn't get off, a Mack truck had overturned its load on the highway in front of us. And the Tennessee Department of Transportation Twitter account was telling us it was going to be after midnight before they got it cleaned up. I called my wife and I said, go to bed. <laughs> Don't wait up. And then I dialed God up. I'm like, God, I know I can't get a prayer answered, but you apparently hear me tonight because I know this looks funny in heaven, but it's not funny down here. And I threw my brook dried up pity party. 
Lord, I have been preaching to pastors. I have been teaching pastors. I have driven 15 miles, 1,500 miles. I got to get up at three at, at 5 a.m. in the morning. I'm not going to get home to 3 a.m. Lord, this is, I'm so upset. I am, listen, and look, somewhere along the way, the Lord whispered to my mind, hey, if I hadn't have slowed you down, it may have been you beside that truck when it turned over on down the highway. I'm not, I don't know if it would have been or not, but here's what I know. Even when you're serving God, obedience is not a shelter from obstacles in your path. You say, well, preacher, what is the Lord trying to do in my life? Can I tell you something? It was a 90-mile walk from the brook Cherith down to the widow in Zarephath. And no doubt, Elijah is saying the whole time, wait a minute, God, I have been in your will. I have been preaching your word. I have been doing everything you say. Why did you let my stream dry up? Listen, you're gonna discover in the Christian life that sometimes when you're doing everything right, the stream will dry up. That's true when you're serving God. That's true when you're going to church. That's true when you're giving and you're tithing. Listen, your car will still break down. Sometimes God's way of moving you and teaching you and teaching you there's a bigger picture you don't even see. Listen, just know this, especially when it comes to giving, obedience doesn't eliminate obstacles. Number two, I've got to hurry. Number two, we switch the story to the widow lady. And number two, you see what you've got. God sees what you can give. The story switches to the widow lady. She has enough flour and oil to make two biscuits. She's going to cook that for her and her son, eat it, and then they're going to starve to death. Bleak plan, but it is realistic. Elijah said, make her a biscuit first. And she had no idea how she could do that because she, had, she did a kitchen inventory. And when she did, she discovered she had enough for two small biscuits, flour, and oil. And when Elijah said, give it to me, she couldn't figure out how she could hold on to what she had and still give. Now, follow me. We operate the same way. We take inventory of our lives and we count up what we have and what we need to hold on to, what we need to live, what we need to get by, how we need to make it. Can I tell you that God adds up the same thing and sees it differently? God sees what he has blessed us with and he sees how much he has given us to give. It's the same bucket, it's the same barrel, but two different perspectives and the trouble with how we view it is that we'll never take inventory and think we have enough we always need a little bit more and our reasoning becomes this we'll give to God when we have more than enough Loyola Marymount did a study university here's what they discovered they asked the question and did the research, how much money would it take for all of us to feel like we had to have enough money? Regardless of the income, get this, regardless of the income, you know what the answer was across the board? 10% more. So people who made $30,000 a year said they needed 10% more. People who made twice that, $60,000 a year, said they needed 10% more. People who made a quarter of a million dollars a year said they needed 10% more. Get this, when they studied millionaires, you know what millionaires said they needed? 10% more. 
And here's what they said. It was a multi-year study. They said everybody who said they needed 10% more, it may have taken several years, get this, they eventually got 10% more. And then you know what they said when they got 10% more? All we need is 10% more. And here's what they concluded. They said, by its very nature, greed is endless and never assuaged. And by being a form of the impulse to live, it only ceases with death. Can I tell you that that's our problem when it comes to giving? No matter what it is God has blessed us with, we will, our mentality is we will give when we get more than enough. The trouble is we never get more than enough. That's why so many people don't tithe. Because you think you'll give it when you get comfortable. But the problem is you never get comfortable. And you write your giving to God after everything else has been paid. But the more money you make, the more money you spend, and more giving never happens. You see everything in your life as what you have. God sees it as what you can give. So here's the only solution to that. The only solution for us changing our mindset and seeing what God has given us as what we can give instead of what we have, listen, is to give first. First. That's why in the, in the Bible, the Bible says give your first fruits to the Lord. That is, when you gave your tithe of the land, the very first thing you gave was the tithe that belonged to God. By the way, the tithe, which is 10% of our income, doesn't even belong to us. The Bible says it belongs to God. We give it to God through the church as his recognition of our giving. And listen to me today. I'm not trying to increase our offerings. I'm not trying to make our offerings bigger at Peavine. The truth of the matter is you're, you're giving and I appreciate everything you give. But here's what I'm trying to say. That your money is an indicator of your overall spiritual life. And if you only see what you've got, you're missing the bigger picture. Because God sees what you can give. And the only way you can view it from God's perspective is to give First, that's what the widow had to do. Look at what God said to her. Go back and feed Elijah first. And it leads me to number three. Number three, here's the lesson we're taught about giving. That is your blessing may be at the bottom of the barrel. If you're taking notes, just write that down. Then would you close your Bible and just give me your attention. I know I'm going a little long, but I'll be done in five minutes. Give me your attention just for five minutes. Just close your Bible, close your notes, and look this way. The widow went back, fixed the meal for Elijah. She poured out the last flour and the last oil. She made him a biscuit, took it to him, and it was all gone. Elijah said, go back and make a biscuit for you and your son. And she went back, and here's what she thought. I know what she thought. She was hoping the flour barrel and the oil barrel would be full of flour and oil. That's not what God promised. Do you you know what happened? When she went back to the flour barrel and the oil jar, they weren't full. Do you know how much was in the barrel and the jar? The same exact amount, amount as before she fixed the biscuit for Elijah. Now get this. Because I ain't no dummy. If I'm the widow lady and I'm like, There's a flour, there's some oil, that thing's empty. 
came out? Flour and oil, enough for two biscuits. And you know what came out? Flour and oil, enough for two biscuits. Every time that lady turned over that little barrel of flour and turned over that jar of oil, you know what came out? Enough for two biscuits. God never promised her the barrel would be full. God promised her there would always be something in it. It was just always going to be at the bottom of the barrel. And can I tell you that that's the difference between a scarcity and an abundance mentality. When we have a scarcity mentality, we won't give to God when we get to the bottom of the barrel because we're afraid there won't be any more. When you realize you serve the God of an abundant mentality, you give at the bottom of the barrel because you know that's where the blessings of God reside. There's you, you believe that there's more where that came from. Now listen today, I am not trying to talk you into giving more. I'm not telling you the church needs your money. Man, I'm not saying that at all. Please don't get confused by this sermon. I'm not saying that. I'm trying to help you live the Christian life because follow me on this. If this widow had not given in her need, follow me, she would have starved. If she not, had not given when her life was at the bottom of the barrel, she would have starved in a matter of days. That defies logic, but that little bit of flour and oil was just what she needed. It was just enough for God to bless her if it was given. And here's what we discovered. The whole time she had in her possession the very thing she needed to live, even though it was just a little bit. In the bottom of a barrel, in the bottom of a jar. You would never have heard this name, but a guy named Danny Simpson, he's kind of semi-famous if you look him up in 1990. Danny Simpson lived in Canada, and he needed some money, so he took a revolver, and he robbed a bank, and he got $6,000 for robbing the bank. But they caught him, and uh, they, spent, they put him in jail for six years. So get the picture with me. Danny Simpson walks into the bank in Ottawa, Canada. He brandishes a revolver. He, he demands money. They give him $6,000. He gets away, but they catch him. And he, the 24-year-old spent six years in prison. But get this. He robbed the bank with a revolver. It was a 45 caliber Colt semi-automatic made by the Ross Rifle Company in Quebec City in 1918. They only made 100 of those. And the gun that he robbed the bank with was worth $100,000. And he got 6,006 years in prison if he had just sold the gun. The truth is, he had in the palm of his hand everything he needed. And we start to think that we'll start giving when we get more. Here's what we say, God, when my barrel gets full, can I tell you this? Your barrel will never get full. Larry Ellison does not think he has enough money. The blessings are at the bottom of the barrel. 
God knows that if you won't be obedient with a little, you won't be obedient with a lot. And if you won't be obedient with a lot, you won't be obedient with more. So your blessing is at the bottom of whatever barrel you have. So Josh, come get a song together, and I want to ask you a question. Are you being obedient with your giving to God? There are people that tell me sometimes, they say, Preacher, I don't, I don't tithe, but, but I give God my time. And listen, listen. Listen, this sermon is not trying to get a bunch of little ladies to give to the church. That, that's not what this sermon's about. And I know people, they mean well when they say, well, preacher, I don't tie by. I give the church my time. Listen, your money is an indicator of your faith. Bottom line. God talked about money more than he did heaven and hell combined. You say, well, preacher, my giving is not going to make a huge difference. I'm telling you, a widow found out little is much. So would you stand with me across the building? Here's some things I want you to know. When it comes to giving, don't let difficulties get you down. Even when you're serving God, it doesn't mean your financial portfolio is always pointing up. When you look at what God has blessed you with, you need to start seeing it as what you can give, not what you have. That means you have to give first. Those with a lot and those with a little have a hard time with that. Oh, I've met people in church over the years. They say, well, preacher, I don't want to tell you how much I make, but if I tithe, that'd be a lot of money. And you have a hard time with that. You get, to the, you get down in your barrel and you say, well, preacher, that's a, that's a big scoop. Well, look, we, we could pray that God would reduce your income to a more understandable level if, that was, if you felt that prayer. You probably... Don't want me praying that, but again, you probably don't mind because I can't get my prayers answered anyway, so you're probably good with that, but um, those with a lot have a hard time with it. Those with a little say, preacher, I don't have enough to give. Listen, your blessings is at the bottom of the barrel. And God, tell you two things, give first and you'll get an abundant mindset. And give, even when that scoop at the bottom of the barrel is bigger than what you want it to be. That's where God's blessings are. You don't give to the church. You give to God through the church. And that mindset's totally different. Do you have a scarcity or an abundance mentality? I'm giving an altar call. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's Word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.